2: Welcome to your September 2011 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter, and for the next 11 months, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. So let's get to it. Our first segment is The Journey. Through a candid interview, we take a sneak peek into the ongoing journey of a successful speaker. The goal is to reveal the intentional or reactive big shifts that are successfully building their business. And now, this month's Big Shifter. Today, we're with Jim Mathis, CSP, nine-year member of NSA. All right, now, Jim, you and I go way back here, and I remember that I really liked how you were branding yourself there. It was kind of a Southern boy leadership thing. How exactly were you phrasing that at the time?
3: I called myself Dr. Phil meets Jeff Foxworthy in front of a crowd. Dr. Phil meets Jeff Foxworthy on leadership, I presume?
2: Mm-hmm. Primarily right. leadership. All right, and that was working pretty good for you, right? For the time, it was doing great. So that was way back in 2008, and then something happened that caused you to change that.
3: Well, the economy shifted on me, and people quit buying that. They weren't interested anymore. And as you know, I do a lot of cold calling in my business, so I started, instead of trying to sell myself, doing what you're supposed to do when you get on the telephone, asking questions. And I started asking my clients, my former clients and prospective clients, what are you looking for? What do you want someone to do for you? And they kept saying, we you know, this economy is just terrible in us right now. What can you do that speaks to that? So I began to shift toward talking about the economy and my key phrase is the economy isn't down, it's different. All right, not down, but different. And what did you mean by that? that you have to be different. The the economy doesn't go up and down. It shifts in different directions. I mean, it's doing that all the time anyway, but a recession actually speeds that up. So I started talking about how recessions never really, never truly end. Every recession throughout history has changed the economic climate, the personal climate, our habits so much that we have to change our life in relation to that. So if it, quote, comes back, there's not going to be a tarp or a recovery. It's going to come back different. And companies that stay ahead are different. For instance, Pontiac Mercury Saturn couldn't be different Circuit City couldn't be different but companies like Lexus Mercedes Audi hey they're high-end you claim people don't have money to pay for a speaker don't have money to pay for necessities in life those companies have not only succeeded they've done great if you own an iPhone or an iPad they've introduced those products right in the middle of the deepest darkest recession that in recent years and they sell like hotcakes because we want to get it now before the price drops and yes I have both of those (laughs) now now Jim, as you
2: basically came out with a different concept for your business here and the clients started responding to this concept, how did this change how you positioned your speaking services and how you positioned how you actually delivered those services?
3: Well I started learning from what I was doing with my clients if if it was working to ask questions over the phone, it was working better to ask questions in the presentation. So about a year ago, after talking to the great Joe Calloway, we talked about how, you know, he said, you want to be an industry of, you know, uh, on your own, then you need to sort of get out of speaking and migrate into something else where I'm not just a regular run of the mill speaker. So I began to brand myself as the reinvention strategist where I'll strategize in a session. For instance, let's say I have an hour and a half keynote. 60% 60% of that time, I'm doing the talking. But throughout that, I ask little questions and I talk about certain topics. The last 40% of it, I turn it over to the audience and I ask them questions. Let them sit in little two and three person buzz groups so it doesn't matter how big the room is or how many people are there. I ask them the questions like, how, is business, how has business, How's your business changed in the last year? Um, How are you punishing people for doing business with you? Questions like that.
2: How are you punishing people for doing business with you? Now, that's a pretty darn provocative question. (laughs) Tell me more about that.
3: Well, provocative sells. And I like to ask that question, how does the average customer feel punished when they call you on the phone, when they try to do a transaction, in the process, how do they feel punished, whether it's through your voicemail, whether it's uh, through the buying process, how many clicks does it take to buy from you? If you're a speaker, how many clicks does it take to purchase something on your website or to get in touch with you directly? I actually have CEOs to borrow someone else's cell phone and call their own office while they're out at the conference and see how hard it is to find out where they are or get in touch with themselves.
2: So hold on a second here, Jim. Let me go back to two provocative things that you seem to be doing with your clients here. I love provocative. One is you said, so are you, certainly you've timed this 40% of your time in a keynote is actually spent interviewing attendees from stage or going out into the audience and interviewing them or having them talk to each other.
3: Right. It's very interactive. I like to make it more interactive because it becomes it's all about them. And I try to make more of my business, and I've actually transitioned my brand more about the people in the audience and my people. Is it, In other words, in other words, my clients, the people who are hearing me, I want to make it more about them. To give you an example, I was speaking to a group in Costa Rica uh, nice gig. six months ago. Yeah, and it was like burning hot, the air conditioning wasn't working, and it was a group of contractors. And I began to ask them the questions. And right in the middle of the first question period while they're talking to each other, the meeting planner, the executive director, walked over to me and he said, I cannot believe you've got these guys talking business in a tropical setting. But you've done it. And I said, that's because if I try to be provocative enough at the outset and get them to start thinking about this, then I turn it over to them, they internalize it and start saying this is how things have changed. This is how I see my business. This is how my customers see it. I never thought of it that way. I mean, they couldn't wait to get back up to Canada and get back to business and implement some of this stuff.
2: So let's go back to some more of these provocative questions here. So I heard you say that you say live in front of the audience Mm -hmm. here, and you actually expect a response here. How are you punishing your customers for doing business with you? Now exactly. do attendees actually well, Jim, here's how we're doing that. Are they actually raising their hand and responding?
3: Well, I've actually already planted the seeds earlier on in the sixty percent where I'm talking where I give examples of, of mm-hmm. from personal life and from companies that do this and you things that they do. So Prime the they, pump a little bit. I prime the pump, exactly. So they're already thinking about this. Yeah, now, I prime the pump on all these questions.
2: So I know they're thinking it on their inside
3: voice, but do they actually like pop up their hand and say it they talk to each other in groups of twos or threes they'll participate there then i go around with a microphone i've already been getting to know these folks before they even come in the room i'm walking around listening to them and when i hear something good i'll say hey can i ask you about that in a moment And they'll say yes Okay. Or you know, or ask him. He's the one that'll vocalize vocalizes. So I know right who to go for.
2: So Jim, you're you're talking about kind of really gutsy questions, provocative questions that you give them for how things are externally. What about internally? Do you ask them questions on how things are going internally during right. your speech?
3: Like how are you giving your people permission to make you look good? Do your people have to be empowered or do they have to come and ask you every time they want to satisfy a customer, every time they want to go outside of your quote guidelines or policies to make you look good? And people answer that and say, yes, we are doing that. Well, they all like to say that on the surface. I mean, every company will say, we hire the best people. i say, really, do you go out and you interview everybody, you only take the top 10% of the people who interview, you check their SAT scores, you take their, check their college exams, and you check their grades, and you go back and check their resumes, or do you just take the best of whatever you can get in? Everybody says, we hire the best people. They don't necessarily do that, and I challenge companies to look at that, that you've hired people that the main problem is you haven't unleashed them to be creative and intuitive like they already are. And so
2: you're saying this in front of the people themselves and their managers.
3: Exactly. I told you, I love
2: provocative.
3: Incredibly nervous here. It's okay if it does. My job is not to make them feel comfortable. My job is to make them so uncomfortable they have to think their way out of the room if they want to.
2: Do they think their way into or make decisions in the moment in that meeting?
3: They do. I had a group that I was working with, a uh, sales group. Okay. And the sales manager, they told him, very quickly, the dinosaur they wanted to get rid of, the thing that, that was costing them more than making them, was the weekly sales meetings on Monday morning. The top salespeople wanted to be out pounding the pavement or on the telephone making sales. They had clients they wanted to meet with. They said, Monday morning's a hot time for us. And they started asking him, why do we have these meetings? Well, it turned out it was to make him feel good and to him, quote, motivate them. And they said, we don't need to be motivated. The people that need to be motivated need to be meeting with you separately. This allowed him to start looking at the folks that he had to keep kick-starting them every week to get going, and he started actually culling his sales force of the people that weren't going to work no matter how much he motivated them. Because you and I know you can't motivate somebody. They have to be motivated to do something on their own.
2: So did this this Monday morning
3: meeting the top sales got excused? He eliminated the meetings altogether, came up with a new plan just based on this one question, a new plan to work with people in different ways because he realized he had different people working for him and emailed me about a month later and said, this is going great. We have not had a sales meeting for four weeks and our sales have just skyrocketed because I've unleashed people to do what they do best. That's awesome. So that's a pretty gutsy
2: stuff here. So most of, or I would say almost half of your keynote
3: is actually interviewing people and having to do buzz groups you called it? I call it buzz groups. I I do this because I'm able to set it up for the first 60 minutes and it builds up to this. And I find meeting planners, executive directors, CEOs, presidents love the fact that their people are interacting, they're talking and they're walking out with actual ideas.
2: All right, now to kind of put an end on this here. We said this is about building your business. Yes. Building the business. Now, how is this new, you know, reinvention positioning? How is this new way
3: of actually delivering your information built your business? Well, it's built my business tremendously. For one thing, I've been speaking on the average one to two times a week for the last year and a half. I'm signing clients that often as well, too. Um, Not having to, quote, cut fees or negotiate. It's, It's working for us terrific. I've also been able to transition the business more in the past few weeks to months to more about the people in the audience. In other words, I'm not the reinvention strategist anymore. I'm the deliverer to the reinvention nation, my folks in the audience. I, I got this idea because I live in Atlanta, Georgia. We have Bulldog Nation here. I know that the Green Bay Packers are Packer Nation, There's Raider Nation. Stephen Colbert uses Colbert Nation. And so I create my own nation of people, quote, unquote, that are want to reinvent themselves. And I work with leaders who want to reinvent themselves in challenging economies. And fortunately for me, every economy has challenges in it.
2: I I think you've got job security there for a long time. With VOE this year, we're featuring brand new formats and bringing back some classic ones. We're also extending the value of VOE by continuing the conversation. I encourage you to go to NSA VOE on Facebook and ask questions and make comments on the programs that we upload there. Now, I am really excited about this next brand new segment. It's Point, Counterpoint. (laughs) Yes, now some of you can already tell where this is going. In our case, Point Counterpoint is a takeoff on a takeoff. Here's how that actually makes sense. In the early 1970s, 60 Minutes decided that providing a single point of view on key issues wasn't serving as viewers. So they created a segment that featured a conservative and liberal commentator. Each addressed the same topic, but from their own perspective. They named it Point Counterpoint. A few years later, Saturday Night Live created a takeoff on Point Counterpoint. Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin gave wildly over-the-top commentaries from extremely different points of view, and they threw in verbal attacks that are memorable even 30-plus years later. All of us over 45 can likely quote their trademark insults. Jane, you ignorant slut. And Dan, you pompous swine ass. It was edgy, funny stuff. Note, those are historical references, so don't send me any complaint emails. Thank you. Now, for our VOE version of Point Counterpoint, we're also going to take on key issues from our industry. Each month, we will feature two distinctly different commentators, aiming for a happy medium between the highbrow 60 Minutes version and the non-politically correct version of SNL. We'll see. Now, just in case this format doesn't work out, I figured it was wise to have a scapegoat. So, for a 100% accountable segment producer, I cajoled David Newman into volunteering. Brian, a pleasure and a privilege. All right. So, David, how did you decide first what we're even going to be talking about with Pointer Counterpoint? Well, first of all, you were crazy enough to
4: let me run with this idea, so I thank you. Number two, I think our association, as beloved as it is, can often be a vortex of conflicted advice. And we hear from very successful speakers and very successful uh, practitioners of our business that will give you 180-degree diametrically opposed advice on the same exact issue. And so if you're a new speaker, emerging speaker, or even an experienced speaker who's looking to make some of these decisions, you can walk down the hallway at your NSA chapter meeting. You can walk down the hallway at any of our national meetings, and you'll see someone who is on one side of an issue, extremely successful, someone else diametrically and, might I add, violently opposed equally successful doing the 180 degree opposite strategy. How in the world can that be true? Let's have them duke it out. Number one, niche versus no
2: niche. Assertively taking the pro niche position is Jim Ziegler, CSP. And aggressively countering with the anti-niche position is Scott McCain, CSP, CPAE. Kick us off, Scott.
5: Jim, I love you. You're a great buddy. You have done incredible things in this business, but I, I respectfully disagree with you in terms of niches. I think we've gone about niching all wrong in this professional speaking business, and I, I think we need to take a look at what it is. I don't believe in niches. What's Zig Ziglar's niche? If, if we want to attain the top of the marketplace, I don't think niching is the way to go.
6: Well, I respect your right to be wrong. Um, <laughs> Zig Ziegler certainly has a niche, he's in sales and, and marketing, and, and, of, and of course he speaks to sales and marketing audiences. I speak to the automobile industry and I selected that niche years ago. And as you know Scott, you and I both came out of the radio industry yep. far removed from the car business for heaven's sake. Sure. And When I found that I could segment an audience, become an expert in one subject and become one of the ultimate experts in that subject, recognized nationally as such. I'm one of the go-to guys, there's not four guys in my category, in my industry, that when, when they think of a speech or a seminar, a breakout or a consultancy, that they don't put my name in that hat down. Down the yeah,
5: board. But Jim, I'm going to suggest to you it's not because you chose that niche. It's because you're so darn good at what you do. Maybe you've restricted yourself too much to that niche. I, I, I would suggest, yeah, Zig got started in that niche, but Zig's filling audiences of all walks of life. Ministers, uh, uh, leaders, everybody. What's Tony Robbins' niche? What's Brian Tracy's niche? It's people that want information, but they are the brand. And I think one of the things that we need to do is to carve out our own brand, our own uniqueness, and, and we don't do that by restricting ourselves to an industry. My niche is what I talk about. And I want all industries that have a desire for that information to come after what I got. I don't want to restrict it to just, you know, I love Jim and Naomi Rohde, but if I thought dentists were all I was going to speak to for the rest of my life, I'd (laughs) cut my wrists. It's, I love dentists. I've done dentist groups, but I don't want to, I don't want to do just automobile groups. I don't want to do, I think we restrict our ability to grow our business by restricting ourselves to a niche.
6: I disagree wholeheartedly because I started this company in 1986. I came out of the automobile industry after the radio industry, and I always wanted to improve that industry and become creative in that industry. A lot of what I teach and a lot of what I do is innovative, not what I was taught, but what I am creating and teaching others and the legacy I'm leaving behind in a, in a very tight niched industry.
5: And you're making a lot of money doing it. I'm not suggesting a lot of money. Isn't that great? (laughs) Don't you just smile saying that? But at the
6: same time,
5: I mean, I would say, okay. So, I'm. I'm, Matter of fact, from this conference where we're recording this, I am going to speak to a group of dentists. They need to hear what you've got to say. Why? Why would we restrict a compelling and powerful message to to a specific industry when instead we could build a brand about our message? you said it was innovative, you said it was unique, I know it is. I want to think that what I say is innovative and unique, why wouldn't that pull and attract rather than us trying to, to restrict to a specific area?
6: Laser surgery as opposed to a shotgun approach. <laughs> yeah, I I have a board so deep, I'm not a mile wide, I'm a mile deep. And I, I look at the people in the industry that I travel around the country, I'm, I'm 200 days a year out there, and it's it's, it's a growing schedule, but people say, why do you do it? It's, it's gratifying. You know, people sure. people look at me and say, well, when are you going to retire? Right? Retire? Hell, I'm going to die on stage in front of a cheering audience. Just grab my chest and go. You
5: know? <laughs> and hopefully no time soon. I'm with you, man. I'm, I, I want to do a keynote at NSA when I'm 100. You know? <laughs> That's
6: how I want to go, right? And, but, Nito, and Nito leads the intelligence. Leads you know, exactly.
5: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I... I I want, to, I want to believe, anyway, that I'm deep in terms of what I talk about, in terms of what I'm, some people say when I talk, it is getting deep, but that's a whole <laughs> other argument there. But, but I don't want to restrict that to one particular niche. It's a marketing choice. I want to build the brand so that all different types of companies, whether it's an automotive or medical or healthcare, dentists, real estate sales, are saying, we want what Scott McCain talks about. And if I can build that brand and have it across a wide audience, it just seems to me that I'll be able to command higher fees, sell more books, sell more product, have more success in the industry than if I just say I'm working in this one particular field.
6: Well, I hear that. and. Uh Occasionally, I do speak outside the industry.
5: And I can argue you're a success, buddy. You're, just you're to doing remind it, you're myself it. that I'm
6: capable of doing yep. that. Yep. But coming back to core competency, and this is what I, I tell brand new speakers. I do a lot of mentor work. I Get back to your core competency. So many speakers. Now, listen to this. This is original Zieglerism. Beware of distractions that come to you disguised as opportunities. So many, so many yeah. brand new starting speakers get all involved in trying to catch every dollar bill that's flowing around the wind tunnel that they let go of one to catch another when they never get back to core competency. My core competency is narrowly defined. I know what it is. Laser focused. My clients respect me as the ultimate authority in that field down down to three or four competitors, and that's it. When you are a generalist, you've got thousands and thousands of competitors, and they don't know exactly how good you are.
5: But, you know, Jim, I can come into a group and I can say, you know, you hear from the industry experts all the time. Let me tell you, Dennis, what the best practices are in financial services. Let me tell you what the best practices are in sales and marketing. Let me tell you what companies that I work for, like Cisco and Intel and, you know, others, the, the, what they're doing to drive their business and, and, and you can do in your dental practice or you can do in your. And so there is that need for someone to be able to, to take the industry blinders off so that they can see what's happening globally globally and might bring them some ideas that because they're only listening to industry speakers that they might overlook but you are the legendary scott
6: mccain one of Uh my personal heroes (laughs) all these nsa people listening to this broadcast are not you they're not me they're they're just starting out they're trying to define who they are and they're walking around here they're meeting hundreds if not thousands of other speakers and they're just amazed how many rich people there are in this industry
5: or that say they
6: are uh, NSA hallway dollars
5: <laughs> you, yeah, yeah you, made, you made a comment earlier about an NSA millionaire It's kind of less than <laughs> Well you know what the heck um, Jim I can't argue with you on that I, I think you're exactly right about that. I, I, I just think and, and perhaps that's part of what this is about is it's great way of pointing out that both you and I have been very blessed in this business and we've done it different ways. And, and no one of us has the corner the, the on the market of how you approach this business and how you
6: make a difference. Well, the downside is I personally have crashed twice in 30 years. The ability to come back and the ability to stay with it, that is part of the niche that when the auto industry crashed just three years ago, of course, the rest of the country crashed, too. And, and I had to tell... My constituents, hey, it's coming back. We have to work at it. it. It's not the economy. It's not the product. It's not the banks. It's not Barack Obama. It's you personally. You have to get back to it. And um, I became a messenger in an industry, not just um, a technique teacher, sure. a healer. Yeah. And that that, that but, was Jim, let, let
5: me ask you this. I mean, this this is part of my challenge with the niche. If if I'm niched in the auto industry, as an example, and the industry crashes. All, my eggs are all in that basket with the industry. It, with what I do, if the auto industry goes down, well, technology may be doing all right at that period of time. Well, if me, real uh, estate's down, the healthcare's God, doing all right.
6: Everything crashed. Yeah, there you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah no <laughs> yeah. doubt about that.
5: But, but there were industries that weren't damaged as badly as what we saw in auto, as what we saw in real estate, as what we saw in some of them. And, you know, thank goodness for me, I was thankful I wasn't niched because there were healthcare was still doing okay, you know, technology was doing okay. Not what they had been doing in the past, but they weren't facing the enormous
6: declines as some specific industries were. And a counterpoint to that, I was blessed that I made a good income throughout because I was at the top of a niche and other people lower down the food chain didn't fare quite as well because I had crawled and climbed all the way to the top recognized position in my niche.
5: Jim, I think part of the problem is that people who say they have no niche really have no speech. They're they're so generic in what they say that that's their excuse for not having a niche. And, And I want to make certain that I'm saying when I say I have no niche, I'm very precise about what I talk about. You cannot differentiate what you cannot define. And so the the point here is your speech is differentiated, your speech makes you unique, but I'm suggesting that you can broaden the audiences to whom you are speaking as you're building your
6: career. How many people get into this business thinking that it's easy? <laughs> How many people get into this business thinking it's a cakewalk? That uh, It took me 30 years to become an overnight success. And, my gosh, I had to crawl my way up from gaining the expertise, which so few speakers, and I'm just going to say so few speakers, gained the right to be on the stage to begin with. They didn't build the expertise. They didn't learn the profession, and they wanted to start out teaching it.
5: Jim, I, I've got to agree with you 100% there. I, I was in a student organization, same one as Mark Sanborn, same one as Mark Mayfield. We knew each other when we were all you know, 18, 17, 16 years old. That's how far we go back. The three did they of us have speakers then. They, barely, they didn't okay. have sound systems, but they did have speakers. <laughs> but the three of us each gave about a thousand free speeches as state and national officers of that student organization. And so I tell people, look, you don't have to give a thousand free speeches; do half that. I'll do anything to help you build your speaking business if you'll do half it. In, in, in thirty years in this profession, I have yet to have one person come back to me and say, "I did that." You've done that. One of the things that we see, whether you do or do not have a niche, I, I, I would suggest to you that one of the things that you and I do see in common is the folks like us have paid our dues. And now, let's play.
7: What's your seeker
0: IQ?
2: Yes, it's time to quickly quiz you on non-trivial trivia from the speaking meeting industry. You will hear a series of multiple choice, fill-in-the-blank, and true or false questions. For every correct question you make, you are likely superior to several of your NSA colleagues. And remember, in this game, what you don't know probably will hurt you. Question 1. According to trends identified in a nationwide benchmark hospitality survey, which category of professional speakers should be earning more in 2011? A, motivational speakers, B, leadership speakers or C, team building speakers. Huh? Huh? And the correct answer is C team building speakers. While growth is uneven, companies are consistently increasing their requests for experiential activities during meetings. Alright, question number two. Fill in the blank. Out of the approximately 1.8 million meetings and conferences held in the U.S., a whopping one point blank of them were for corporate or business groups. Hmm? Hmm? And the correct answer is million, or 72%. And lastly, question 3. True or false, a new smartphone app for finding nearby toilets around the globe is called sit or squat? And the correct answer is, of course it's true. If you got 3 out of 3 right, you are smarter than a 5th grader. Our next segment on VOE is Make It Work. This is a tribute to the style of my favorite TV reality show personality, and that would be Tim Gunn from Project Runway. Now, Tim meets with stress designers halfway through their project and acts as a gentle yet authoritative mentor. He gives them advice, and no matter what state their project is in, he exhorts them with his catchphrase, Make it work. And that's what we are doing with this segment, Make It Work. We are bringing you content mentors in different aspects of running your speaker business. We're not telling you what you have to do, just giving you insights and challenging you to make it work. And now we're going to be talking a bit about trademarks. We're pleased to have in the VOE studios today, Francine Ward. Francine, besides being a great speaker, of course, is a business and intellectual property lawyer with a focus on copyright, trademark, and social media and publishing law issues. Now, Francine... When I start saying, okay, we're going to talk about trademarks here, I think there could be a lot of, oh, trademarks, we've heard all that before. It's all easy stuff. It's all on USPTO.gov. We don't need lawyers. We don't need helps. Why are we even talking about this? So before we get into this, what's one reason why everyone listening to VOE right now should, like if they're driving, they should pull to the side of the road and they should focus on this segment?
8: Well, I'm going to make a bold and provocative statement that 75% of every speaker who has a trademark right now, or who thinks they have a trademark, probably doesn't.
2: Okay, I was just pausing there for the drama. How do they find out if what you're saying is true?
8: Well, what they would do is actually go to the USPTO.gov website, put in their registration number where it says check status, and see.
2: So check status, and what are you saying 75% of them are going to find when it says check status?
8: I think 75% of them are going to find that their trademarks have been canceled because they did not do what they needed to do after the registration was done.
2: All right. Francine, true confessions time. I actually heard you give a longer presentation on this on a past convention. And uh, just last month, I'm driving four hours to go visit my daughter at college here. And so I popped in your CD and several other CDs. And I heard you say this, and I thought, 75%, those are not good (laughs) odds. So I get home, and what do you think the first thing I did was?
8: You checked your trademark. I
2: checked my thing was. No big deal. Just the name of my company And you were right. Ouch. Now, of course, I'm appealing it. I'm reapplying it. I'm confident I'll get it, but I just guaranteed myself major hassle because I didn't do
8: what? Because you didn't file two documents. Number one, Section 8 of the trademark uh, statute says that between years 5 and 6, you must file what we call a continued use document. And all that is, is that you're saying you're still using the trademark like you said you were using it. The second filing is, let's say you get past that stage, between nine and 10, you must file a renewal. And if you don't file one of those two documents, actually, if you don't file both of those documents, you have lost your trademark.
2: Now, of course, the USPTO uh, sends you reminders, right? No
8: way! No way! No, not at
2: all. (laughs) Not at all. No. In fact, apparently, they don't even send you reminders that it's gone. No way! Wow. Okay, I think you've got our attention for trademarks. You certainly got mine. So, before we get into that, let's go back to the beginning of the whole trademark thing here. What is the first big mistake speakers make when it comes to trademarks?
8: Well, I think one of the first mistakes that speakers make is that they think they can do it themselves. And without question, there are some speakers who understand the trademark process. They can do it. But for the most part, they don't understand. And instead of investing in a competent attorney to help them out, they think they can do it on their own.
2: Okay, now, someone might say, Francine, you're an attorney. Of course <laughs> you're going to say that. Now, of course, you're speaking on behalf of all property right lawyers on the planet, as you're saying this here. So what's, I guess, what's the biggest mistakes, besides obviously not filing the post-registration documents, but what type of things do speakers get wrong when they go solo and they say, I, I can load ranger this Francine, no worries?
8: Well, one of the most costly mistakes is not doing a thorough search on the front end and only discovering later on that someone else is using the same mark that they want to use. A lot of speakers try to avoid having to spend that three, four, five, six hundred dollars on the front end to do a really thorough search. And what they find later is as they're going through the registration process, someone else has been using that mark a lot longer. Then, before you know it, they receive A notice from the government saying there's a likelihood of confusion with someone else's existing mark.
2: So even if someone doesn't have a trademark, but they're using the mark, or it's similar, that's going to prevent you from getting yours.
8: Well, it might not necessarily prevent you, but it could. See, with trademark law, use is much more important than registration. Although I will say in the last few years, trademark examining attorneys have really been placing a lot of emphasis on who gets to uh, to the trademark office registration desk first.
2: All right, so... What's the next most common mistake for speakers when it comes to trademarks?
8: Not registering their trademark application in as many classes as they possibly can. I know a speaker in NSA, an and she's got a very big brand, but she had only applied for registration in one class. And in the trademark process, which a lot of people know, there are different classes of uh, that you can register your mark. She had it registered in only one class, but yet she's using her mark as a speaker, as a coach. She's got DVD products. She's got electronic products. She's got all kinds of products. Are all she, those different classes? Those are all different classes, but she only had it registered as a book series. And so she's been getting lots of, She well, she's noticed lately that her mark has been infringed. But it was infringed in a class other than where she was registered. Now, she may still have a good chance of winning in this, you know, in this situation. But the reality is she's going to have to pay a lot of money to her attorney to fix it.
2: So it's now a battle.
8: It's now a battle. There's opposition because the other person has said, but you're not using it in this class. So you can't claim trademark." protection.
2: And why don't speakers register it more in one class?
8: Well, I would imagine it's mostly for the cost because without question, trademark registration is pretty pricey. It's $325 per class per mark. But I still say it's worth spending that money on the front end, especially if this trademark goes to the heart of your brand. It's like, why not spend $1,000, $2,000, 3000 on the front end to protect that, as opposed to having to come back later, spending even more money trying to clean up the mess?
2: All right, what's another area where speakers are making errors when it comes to trademarks that's very preventable?
8: Speakers not responding to office actions. Office actions.
2: Okay, I assume we're not talking Microsoft Office. so. Whose office?
8: The United States Patent Trademark Office is office.
2: Okay, their office. Okay, <laughs> so that's an important office. Then when you say office actions, is this during the application process or once you already have a trademark?
8: No. What happens is once you file your trademark application and it goes into the system, it's assigned to an examining attorney. About three or four months after that happens, the examining attorney will very often come to you and ask for additional information or they want you to make some changes, or they're telling you that you've got to present a strong argument why you should be able to have your mark registered, especially if someone else has already been using a mark that's very similar.
2: So I guess this I would find this surprising. So you're saying it's been your experience that speakers don't respond to these things? They don't. Or-
8: they don't respond, and the reason Are they don't... Are we crazy? Is, well, I mean, what? But, you know, again, it goes back to the government doesn't let you know. I mean, they let you know you've got six months. They send you the office action, and it generally says you have six months to respond. It's your responsibility to put that six-month date on your calendar. They don't give you a reminder. And so if you miss that six-month mark... They consider the application abandoned.
2: Key action of that is respond. Respond, respond in a timely
8: fashion. Respond
2: timely fashion. All right. All right. What else?
8: Not having a trademark application in the system is a bad thing if you've been using your mark.
2: So they just kind of slap TM on and just start using it and think all is well.
8: That's it. But the reality is even though use is critical in the trademark process, again, as I said before trademark registration is becoming very, very important. So the first person who gets that application in, even if it's the intent to use, which is a form of application where even if you're not using the mark yet, but you intend to use it, mm-hmm. you actually have a placeholder. So it's better to have that placeholder. And then the government gives you plenty of time before you actually have to say you're using it. But it's better to get that placeholder in, in place, if you will.
2: So... The risk is that speakers say, well, I'm going to see if this is going to last. Kind of intentional procrastination because we're not sure yet. Sometimes. So it sounds like this is more of a cost thing.
8: Well, I think it could be both. I think you bring up a good point. Sometimes I've heard speakers say, oh, I'm not really sure if I'm going to use this mark. Or I know a speaker right now who waited about two years ago. She wanted to file an application. Then she said, you know, I'm not really sure what's going to happen with it. Maybe the publisher won't like it as a book title. Maybe I won't use it as my coaching program. Well, you know what? Now I already see someone else having taken that mark. So even if she wanted to register it now, she wouldn't be able to do that.
2: So it's almost kind of like registering for domain names, except it costs about 10 times as much. Absolutely. Okay, let's say I'm a speaker and I've got a word mark that I'm starting to use and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to follow Francine's advice here. I'm just going to start the process, get going here. But I don't have three, four grand to do in a whole bunch of classes. If I I have a cost issue, is it better to at least get one category going and then add another one?
8: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. If money is an issue, which for some people it absolutely is, I say it's better to register in one class. That's $325. It's better to do it in that class than no class at all, because at least you get the mark in the system. And if you get that one registered, you can always go back and and, and add on.
2: Now, for speakers who aren't as familiar with classes here, for your knowledge of trademarks working with speakers, what would be the most important classes to make sure? Are you saying, like, whatever you do, make sure you do number 41, 42, and 43? Or what what are are the most important classes, you think, for speakers?
8: Well, for speakers, I think, number one, uh, class 41. Class 41 is pretty broad, and it uh, will cover your seminars, workshops. It will also cover personal coaching. It will also cover, let's say, if you're doing entertainment pieces, uh, television. So 41 is pretty broad. I'd say definitely 41. 41 is our but friend, you speaker. Want, but the key is you want to make sure that you include all of those pieces, like personal coaching, like speaking workshops, like uh, if you're doing television, to include entertainment. Number 41, another one that's very important for speakers is class number nine, which includes electronic products. So that would be our DVD products, our CDs. If we've got downloadables on our website, that would cover that particular so is that section.
2: audio and video?
8: Audio and, vid- and video. Okay,
2: so class 41, which kind of covers most of the live type of things Speaking. you do. Speaking number 9 covers most electronic dissemination of
8: your content. Right, And number 16 also would be very important for speakers. That covers printed material. So let's say, for example, there's a speaker who actually has a series of books. And uh, and again, hear me, series, because a lot of speakers make the mistake of trying to file in class six for one book title, and a book title can never be protected by trademark unless it's a series or unless it's, it's acquired what we call secondary meaning, which means that title goes on something more than just your book. It goes on your coaching program, your speaking topic, your DVDs. So if they're going to register in 16, they need to have a series.
2: All right, so it's got to be a series, and then it can be trademarked.
8: The title right. can be trademarked if it's a series.
2: All right. So, Francine, in a... Nice, helpful, but scary way kind of kick the hornet's nest when it comes to trademarks. and A bunch of people are going to rush out there and, and take a look here. Uh, we're going to be posting uh, this interview on the VOE Facebook site. And so, are you willing to kind of check in and see if people got some questions or some comments? Are you willing to kind of continue the dialogue?
8: I'm absolutely willing to continue the dialogue. Um, it's really important, though, to understand that what I would give is legal information, not legal advice.
2: That's right. And with that shall we say, stipulation. (laughs) Thank you very much. And here's another brand new VOE segment. We're calling it Perfect Pitch. Now, the idea with Perfect Pitch is that we are going to have three speakers give a pre-recorded 60-second pitch for their particular speech or speaking services. And then we will have real-world customers and bureau owners give real-time feedback on those pitches. Today on our customer panel, we have Lorianne Reynolds. Now, Lorianne heads up the direct sales channel for Pemco Insurance in the Pacific Northwest. Now, during dynamic sales conferences over the last 10 years, she has hired many, many NSA speakers. Now, on the other end of our customer panel, we have Andrea Dreesen. Andrea is the founder and chief boredom buster of the No More Boring Meetings Speakers Bureau. Andrea has directly pitched and facilitated the pitching of many NSA speakers to clients since...
7: How long? Mm, uh, For 12 years now.
2: Okay, Laurieann and Andrea, thanks for being on Perfect Pitch. Are you ready for our pitchers?
7: You bet. Yep.
2: All right. Now, to frame things, Laurieann and Andrea, you are going to imagine that you are the ideal target client for our three utterly different Perfect Pitchers. Now, they, in turn, have been told to imagine that they were in front of a selection committee who had glanced at their one-sheet or website briefly before this in-person meeting. Now, after the usual pleasantries, we will imagine that the speaker has been directly asked, so what would you do for us? First up to answer is Waldo the Wingman Waldman, CSP MBA. His ideal clients are those holding national or regional sales meetings where they want to take sales to the next level. And here's his 60-second pitch.
9: Hi, thanks a ton for considering me for your sales meeting next year. As you probably know, I'm a New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of a book called Never Fly Solo and I'm a combat decorated fighter pilot and most importantly I have a ton of real-world sales experience. In my keynote, Never Fly Solo, I'm going to teach your sales team three specific items. Number one, how to commit themselves to excellence despite the missiles that are being shot at them, be it the economy, the budget cuts, and being overwhelmed and compelled to sell more than they did last year. Number two, how do they prepare for every mission? I call it being mission ready, contingency planning, and building confidence in their skills. And last and most importantly, how to appreciate the unsung heroes that are behind the scenes in your organization who allow them to sell. Being able to ask for help and treating their co-workers as wingmen, as trusted partners, builds unity, cohesion within your organization, allows those salespeople to go out and execute the flight plan to win. Thanks a ton. I look forward to hearing from you soon.
2: Our second perfect pitcher is Kelly Vandiver. Now, Kelly's best audiences are organizations that want their leaders to improve their presentation abilities. And here's her 60-second pitch.
1: In an attention deficit, entertain me now, wait till I post that on my Facebook page kind of world, the typical business presentation is lame. I'm Kelly Vandiver, and I've made it my mission in life to eliminate boring business presentations from the face of the earth. Most business presenters obsess over the wrong things. They worry about gestures and PowerPoint slides when they should be focused on their audience. I teach practical ways to take business presentations from lame to fame. I will not rest until the only audience members with a glazed-over look are the parents of newborns. I will not rest until not a single audience member is thinking, so what? I will not rest until the only messages being tweeted at business presentations are about great content. Let's make this a better world for business audiences everywhere. Because with business presentations, it's not about perfection. It's about connection.
2: And our final pitcher is Gary Markle. Now, Gary's target market is a Vistage-type audience, which would be like a group of CEOs or top decision-makers or even a group of senior HR leaders. And here's
10: his 60-second pitch. People hate performance evaluations. Employees find the process demeaning. Managers consider it a profound waste of time. After about 17 years in key HR positions within companies like Exxon, Shell, and Phelps Dodge, I discovered I can't fix it. I've got to replace it. But 11 years ago, I wrote a book called Catalytic Coaching, The End of the Performance Review, and I've been out speaking to Vistage-style audiences, as well as trade associations, about a system that is built around three simple forms used in four kinds of meetings that produce five key business outcomes. positive behavioral change, increased motivation, reduced turnover, increased promotions, and reduced legal exposure. My quest is to rid the world of performance valuations. So, if you've got an audience of CEOs, key decision makers, or HR leaders that you'd like to provoke and give something concrete that will help them improve their business, please check out my program.
2: All right, Lorianne and Andrea, let's get your in the moment reactions to three very different types of pitches. Now, we'll start with Waldo. First question What parts of his pitch stood out or were the most credible or interesting or resonated with you most?
11: I was definitely intrigued with being a, a well-known uh, New York Times author, mm-hmm. and I value the fact that he brings to the table real-world sales experience instead of theoretical stuff.
7: I I think what stood out for me were not so much the New York Times piece, but he said the words combat-ready with his, with his having been in the military. Mm-hmm. So that distinguished him. I like to, as Lorian said, that he has real-world experience, and... I think most of all, I like that he structured his remarks in a really easy to understand way. We had a really short time to hear him, and he was succinct. He used simple language. He said one, two, three, and it allowed me to understand really quickly where he was going and gave me a construct to remember him. The only suggestion I would make is he said twice. He bookended it with the phrase, thanks a ton, and right. I appreciate the gratitude, and at the same time, I think It's a bit too colloquial for this sort of environment, so he might think about the best way to begin and end. There's probably a stronger way than just saying thanks a ton.
2: So less than a ton. (laughs) Well, yes. All right. Second question. Was there anything in the pitch that was murky or missing or focused on more than you felt that was necessary?
11: For me, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting that Andre and I have a little different perspective on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I'm the mother of a severely wounded Iraqi veteran, mm-hmm. and I don't want to think of selling as missiles and battle-ready
2: all right, and Andrea, with uh, your experience with clients, so the the military angle is that something that always resonates, sometimes resonates, mix bang.
7: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Lorraine, because personally, I'm I'm the, probably one of the biggest doves you'll ever meet, and mm-hmm. I so I, it's funny that that didn't stand out for me, and yet I think the reason it didn't bother me the piece on being combat ready or the military analogies was because it simply made him different. It allowed me to have a different. Uh, to hear something different than I normally hear from a prospective sales speaker.
2: Gotcha. Now, after hearing his pitch, what would be the first question that you would want to ask?
11: I think I would ask him to tell me more about appreciating unsung heroes and asking for help. That's very Mm -hmm. intriguing to me, Mm -hmm. and I think um, that's something that's probably not talked about that much in a sales environment. All right. How about you, Andrea? I think I might want an example,
7: because that's really where the rubber hits the road. I think a lot of times people will say things like that, and I'm really one for a a really succinct success story that that zeroes in on what they did differently.
2: He's he's probably listening now going, I've got it. I've got it. I'll tell you now. He's combat ready. All right. So Kelly, let's start out the same type of question before. What parts were most credible or interesting or resonated with you most?
7: I uh, really liked her phrase "from lame to fame." It was something I could easily remember, and it's Mm -hmm. catchy. And I would recommend that she start there. It was an attention grabber, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the hyphenated phrase that she began with. There was some juice. There was some juiciness in that, but I was still more gravitating toward the "from lame to fame." I think
11: it has some. So that was the
2: hook that really hooked you.
11: Mm Mm-hmm. It did. Well, I enjoyed her her presentation style. I enjoyed her. Personality and using some expressions that we will remember. Uh-huh. Um, something that resonated with me that I would want to look to hear her talk about more is the focus on the audience versus the focus on the PowerPoint and so on. I think that's really interesting, and I I just also like the hip mention of Facebook and tweeting and that kind of. Thing.
2: Alright, okay. Now was there anything in the pitch that was murky or missing or more time was spent on that you felt was necessary?
7: I think that there were a couple points when Kelly was talking when she lost me. One where she had a reference to a newborn and I mm-hmm. didn't there was a lot of information in that sentence and I couldn't absorb it. It's interesting that she I know she's all about focusing her message on the audience and helping executives to do that mm-hmm. and For me, there was a little bit of a disconnect because while her phrasing was catchy around I will not rest until X, Y, and Z... Mm -hmm. That's more about her, and it's not as much about the audience. Mm -hmm. So it creates a little bit of a, again, a disconnect between what she stands for and how she's expressing herself.
11: I think that it would flush itself out as I listen to her for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. But when I'm thinking about the initial introduction, there's a little bit of a disconnect between the comments about eliminating a boring presentation... And focus on the audience. I mean, to me, those are kind of maybe two different things. And so quite a bit of information in the first 60 seconds and maybe a little too much to absorb right away.
2: Fair enough. After hearing this pitch, what questions would you immediately want to ask Kelly?
11: I would be interested in hearing more about perfection versus connection. Mm-hmm. And and what her experience is in that regard.
2: Mm-hmm. So it hooked you and you're ready for more.
11: I'm definitely ready for more.
2: All right. How about you, Andrea?
11: Uh,
7: I think I come again back to a real world example. Her topic is a vast one, so it's difficult perhaps to identify one quick example. But again, I think that's where the rubber hits the road. Maybe even just a, a sentence or two that reflects... Okay, here's a boring concept, and here's what I did with it to make it more engaging and more
11: uh, about connection and less about perfection.
2: All right. Gary, so what parts stood out or resonated with you most?
11: Well, certainly his comments about people hating performance evaluations and employees, finding them demeaning in managers, finding them a waste of time, um, c- certainly heightened some curiosity about what his experience has been. Mm-hmm. And then his book on catalytic coaching is in- intriguing. I'd like to hear more about that concept. How about you, Andrea?
7: I liked how Gary gave some very specific concrete examples of the benefits that people take away from his programs. I think he got my attention in the beginning with a pretty provocative phrase that people hate performance evaluations. He wasn't mincing words. And so it made me want to listen for his his argument and what how he was going to prove his point
2: was was anything missing or something you didn't focus on that you thought was important
11: I think he focused, but I felt like he read his book to me in in twenty seconds and I, I got lost I, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't able to absorb the four meetings, five outcomes, three forms. it went too fast for me okay um, but I'm also left with a sense that there's more to come, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't able to really listen to what he was saying.
2: So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It kind of built credibility, but yet it also kind of got you lost a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right, that's fair. How about uh, you? Audrey? I would
11: totally agree. I mean, mm-hmm. I,
7: as I was saying that earlier about his five points, and at the same time, the other side of that was there were a few other numbers that I remember him saying that completely went past me in the short time we had hearing him. So I would encourage Gary to simplify his message a little more, focus on one of those sets of numbers and maybe go a little deeper on one of them. Uh, I thought at the same time he did a good job of, in a very short time, telling us about his experience, that he has 17 years experience within the industry and he's worked with, a, he mentioned a couple of key organizations. So that was a positive way for him to, I thought that was easily understood. But yes, I think the flip side of, of talking about his work is that it was a little bit Uh, like drinking from a fire hose.
2: So what would be the first question that you would have for Gary after hearing a pitch like that?
11: I would be um, curious for him to share more the validation. People hate performance evaluations, and managers find them to be a profound waste of time.
2: So you, you kind of accepted that intuitively, but you would have wanted more... Well,
11: I I heard him say that coming Mm -hmm. from an organization that is very focused on performance evaluations, values them highly, and rewards employees. I'm curious about his 17 years of experience in observing the opposite of what my personal experience Mm -hmm. has been.
2: That sounds like that would be a very interesting conversation. <laughs> Employees hate that. Well, not here, Gary. Oh, yeah? Well, maybe you don't know. It's like, okay, so that, that could go somewhere interesting. Okay. How about you, Andrea?
7: I think Gary said something like, I, I can't fix this. I must replace it. If he hates performance evaluations, is, in fact, his catalytic coaching the antidote? Is it his solution? Mm-hmm. I, and I bet it is, but he wasn't super clear on that and so i would encourage him to slightly shift his wording so that it's obvious that catalytic coaching is his replacement for performance evaluations
2: right. and what everyone can see is the body language of laurianne indicating agreement <laughs> with andrea <laughs> yes. on that last point there so in case gary you're curious that would be the case we
7: have consensus all
2: right so so now we've heard three and this is the hard part here uh If you could pick one where let's say you had a meeting and it was you were the right client and you would say, okay, I would pick that person or I would at least be interested in having a more robust meeting to seriously consider them. If you you saw three of them there, which one would you pick? Who gets to go to the next level? All right, let's start with you, Andrea.
7: They're all very different, and I know uh-huh. that was your intention, Brian. Um, I'd probably lean toward Waldo, because uh-huh. in a world where we're overloaded with information, Waldo did a superbly great job of simplifying his message, having a great speaking voice, and and creating a structure in his pitch that was easily understandable and had a call
11: to action.
2: And how about you, Lorianne?
11: I am a—I'm— al- Persuaded toward Kelly. I like the mm-hmm. personality, kind of the perkiness, memorable phrases that were used. Um, I, I think she would be appealing to our audience.
2: All right. Now, so a couple uh, closing thoughts here for the group here. One is, yes, we realize this is not a purely real-world scenario. Any hiring decision would have more than 60 seconds to talk to someone. But as Andrea pointed out, all the time she's getting calls from speaker, and I know Lorianne has gotten calls from speakers all the time. And when you're on the phone and they say, so what can you do? You don't have five minutes. You don't have 10 minutes. So, yes, this is a simulation. This is an exercise, but it's one that gives us insights into how we can do a better job of being quickly compelling. And I'd like to thank our perfect pitchers for being brave and just putting it out there, asking for criticism and getting some compliments along the way. So thank you very much, Andrea and Lorianne, for being on Perfect Pitch. And now we reach into the VOE vault to bring back a classic format. I blew it. I knew it and what I learned through it. In this format, brave volunteers openly share professional mistakes, lapses, errors in judgment, or just plain dumb actions. Why? So we can laugh at them, of course. But also so that we can perhaps avoid these potholes when one of them is in our path. First up is large account sales expert, Tom Searcy. Tom, how did you blow it? I was speaking to a group of CEOs and it was a tight-knit group
12: for uh, Vistage, about 20 CEOs in the room, and I couldn't get any energy in the morning session. After about an hour and 15 minutes, I looked out into the group and I said, for God's sakes, did somebody die? Uh, The moderator of the group called a break immediately, took me aside and said, Tom, I should have told you, I'm so sorry, we did have a member die. The last time that our group was together was 10 days ago when we buried him. I I, I was just absolutely, there was no way to miss that I had blown it, all right? And there was no way to miss that I had known it. Here's what I learned through it is that I start off every session with my whoever my moderators are or whoever my, my sponsors are and I say, what has happened in this either workshop, the sessions that we're in, in the conference that I need to know to give context? What's good, what's bad, what's high, what's low so that I have context to what's going on and so that I don't step on it going in. I've had people that have had fire alarms. We had people where uh, other speakers have not shown up, where the technology has not worked. We've had other people where they said, last night they killed it it was all about social media and that's the real key issue and if you bring that language in it'll add more value to all the things we're doing so by asking that first question at the beginning of each of these um, kinds of sessions what has happened so far that I need to know about to make me more relevant and valuable has kind of kept me out of some trouble Uh, but uh, nothing as bad as ever happened to me where I said somebody die and they had
2: and now we hear another I blew it from rock star speaker and former radio talk show host Dana Steele. Well,
13: you know, as speakers, one of the most important things we can have is our video. Yes. And I just thought my video, like most speakers, was just killer. It was just the most amazing video. And I got a call the week of Christmas from Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon. And Alan's a great character. He's a fellow speaker. Calls me out of the blue. Dana, Dana, it's Alan Bean. Listen, read your book, loved it, got so much from it. Went to your website, looked at your video, hate it, call me. Okay. So that was my first reaction. Okay, the fourth man to walk on the moon is calling to critique my video. And I called him and just, we had the best conversation, but I I can sum it up by one line. He said, it took me a long time to turn my stories into their stories. Uh. And once I did, I became a better speaker. He said, you have the word I too much in your video you need more use. And I started laughing because one of my best program directors in radio used to pick up the phone and call the hotline. Every time I would say either I or all of us are in there or out there, he would say no. No matter how many people are listening to you, there's only one set of ears and one brain, and they want to know you are talking to them. So always speak on the radio as if you were speaking to your best friend. Don't read the weather forecast. Tell your best friend what the weather's going to be you know and in Houston it's partly cloudy with a chance of rain all the time so you had to come up with you know how would I tell my friend that and to this day I have people that come up to me and say oh my gosh I listen to you I feel like I know you and it was because I was taught to do that delivery and I had never thought to do that on stage until Alan Bain that's how he talks called and said make your stories their stories. Next up is yet
2: another completely new VUE format, Awesome Excerpts. In Awesome Excerpts, we're actually hearing a portion of a top speaker's live presentation, on stage, in front of a live audience. This month, our Awesome Excerpt is from a speech by Simon T. Bailey. Simon is all about magnifying the brilliance inherent in everyone. I could go on and on about his credentials, but I won't. Instead, I invite you to simply appreciate his craft. You can hear it come through the clanking of silverware as he gives a lunchtime presentation to a women's organization. You'll hear powerful phrasing, varied pacing, frequent interaction, call and response, and customized references, all in less than 4 minutes and 11 seconds of content. Now, this wasn't a major speech for Simon. He wasn't in front of thousands of people. This was just an everyday example of his excellent craft at work.
14: I have studied brilliant women from Dubai to Delaware, from Southern California to South Africa, from Osaka to Orlando. And what I have discovered, brilliant women make a decision that they are going to take permanent residence in the penthouse of brilliance and refuse to live in the basement of ignorance. So the question becomes what is the common thread that brilliant women exemplify and they exemplify this big idea called vujade everybody say vujade as you know vujade is the opposite of Deja vu, a word that first appeared in the 1900s, and how many movie buffs do I have in here, do I have any movie buffs in here at all? Okay, so if you've seen You've Got Mail, if you've seen When Harry Met Sally, if you've seen Waiting to Exhale, Miracle on 34th Street, they all all have an air of deja vu. A story, a love interest, and you can almost track where it's going. The more and more, and when you look at the word déjà vu, déjà vu has often been said that it means to been there, done that, great. But vuja dé, as I describe it, is going there, doing that. Vujade is the ability to see what everybody else sees, but to understand it differently. And brilliant women recognize that in the midst of change, shift happens. But when shift happens, the shifted decide to become the shifter, and how they become the shifter is the Vujade. Vujade is the ability to see the future now. Vujade looks at what everybody else sees but decides to flip it. Let me give you some examples of modern day Vujade. How many of you are iPhone, iPad, or iPod users? Okay, so Apple is all about Vujade. They look at what everybody else sees but they understand it differently and they decide to flip it. When they decide to flip it, they realize that it's okay to be different. So all of a sudden, do you realize within the last five years, the word apps had never entered into the lexicon of our culture, but because an organization decided to be different, they vujade it. Many times you will have an inkling or a hunch about something. And when it is time for you to go to another level, ladies, you will be invited to vujade. And how do you know it's time to vujade? Because you will reach a place where you become uncomfortable being comfortable. When you reach that place you are sick and tired of the gravitational pull to be average because you understand that you are absolutely positively brilliant. Everybody take their right hand with me alright and say take it to another level. Now some of you are so conservative, so nice and sweet. I need to say it with a little attitude. Turn to your sister and say, sister, it's time to take it to another level. (laughs) Why? Why? Why do I say that? Here's the deal. If you are going to go, do, be... You can't keep on doing the same thing that you've always done, expecting a different result. Why? In the future, you will be paid for the problems you solve, the solutions you find, not just the product or service you offer. Because if you're only offering a product or service, you will always compete on price. But when you understand how to vuja day, you can see what everybody else sees, but understand it differently.
2: That is an awesome excerpt. And that was part of our VOE tradition. Here's our president's message with NSA National President Laura Stack.
0: VOE holds a special place in my heart. Some of you tell me you still remember the segment I did when Willis Ozels was VOE chair in 2002-03, the muse of the news you can use. I gave little-known facts, anecdotes, and studies that speakers could actually use in their speeches. I'll provide that same sort of flavor in this presidential segment with relevant, valuable ideas for your speaking business. Let me tell you about a recent conversation I had with Peter Sheehan. When he moved to the Denver area, we met at Starbucks for a cup of coffee. Our conversation soon turned to NSA, and I asked him what NSA should do differently to meet the needs of the higher-level speaker like him. Peter asked me, What does NSA do better than anyone else that separates it from the rest of the world? I replied, NSA imparts the entrepreneurial business knowledge needed to make money in the speaking business. So, because he does this for his clients, he was ready with some strategic ideas. He whipped out a napkin and started drawing a picture, an inverted triangle that basically looked like a funnel. He labeled the top a dream and the tip a successful commercial practice. He made five segments on the funnel using business revenue as the differentiating factor between the segments. Then he shared his experience of what speakers should do to advance from level one to five, the fine point of the triangle through which most speakers would love to drip. So level one is presentation. In this level, you're basically developing your speaking skills and trying to get good on the platform. You can make it to about 100K in the business, just giving a good presentation. Level two is packaging. Here, you're creating unique content, differentiating yourself within your topic and creating compelling materials. You'll move from 100,000 to 250,000 in this segment. As you move to level three, you're more concerned with positioning. Here, you firmly establish yourself, understand what differentiates you from the rest of the speakers on this topic, and truly stand out. Your brand is well known at this level, and you're no longer a commodity. You have a very relevant and distinctive message or persona, and you reach about a half million at this point. Next, in Level 4, you focus on platform, not the platform you stand on, but the platform that book publishers are interested in, your ability to spread your message to the masses. Here, you're concerned with product creation and distribution, increased fees, and perceived credibility. You're featured on some pretty important stages at this level and move to the $750,000 level. You are recognized by others as an expert in that area and are top of mind when a client is looking to solve a problem. It doesn't really matter what you charge because clients are heard saying, get me the woman or get me the man who wrote this book. The last level, level five, is proliferation at a million or more. Here, you're looking for elevation, growth, expansion, and branching out. Our million-dollar NSA speakers meet separately at convention because they have different issues and needs at that level. A a one-and-a-half-million business requires a completely different infrastructure than a half-million level. Some speakers at the tip, such as Peter, are looking at how do I expand to a five-million-dollar business? So that's it. The five levels of the NSA funnel on the way to a successful commercial practice. So how do you apply this? First, ask yourself, which level am I at now? Where do I want to be? And how do I get there? So as we discussed this model at a chapter meeting for NSA New York in Syracuse recently, one speaker realized she was stuck at level two because she hadn't really differentiated her programs from the masses. She was still calling herself a communications expert. Well, how many of those are there? Another speaker in the meeting said she has two young children and she's perfectly happy staying in level one for the next five to seven years. Another level three speaker couldn't get to level four because he actually needed to go back and work on his speech from level two because he wasn't getting enough spin when he gave a speech. At level five, Peter was extending his reach to connect and partner with other level five speakers. Whatever you aspire to do in your speaking business, NSA seeks to serve members at all levels. In fact, the number one objective in our strategic plan is to create well-defined, segmented programs and services for the working professional speaker. NSA leadership is keenly aware that the needs of the speaker just starting out and those 30 years into the journey are usually very different. Not only do we have a special group for the million-dollar Level 5 speaker, but we have several other developmental opportunities coming up this year. So watch for more information about the Elite Retreat in December, which will be a gathering for Level 3 half-million-dollar speakers. In addition to the Winter Conference and convention next year, we'll also hold a business development lab at the headquarters in April to help speakers levels two through four monetize and distribute their messages. I hope Peter Sheehan's napkin diagram provides the same insightful coffee conversation as it did for me. Each
2: VOE will close with a final segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of speaking, communication, or just things that strike my fancy. Today, the topic is being verbally viral. And for that, we need to consider American Idol. Each season on American Idol kicks off with a painful yet must-see TV moment of contestant auditions. For this year's season 10, the judges found themselves in New Jersey listening to the train wreck that was 25-year-old Ashley Sullivan. For her audition, she boomed out a lively chorus from a Broadway musical. Really. Really. It was met with stunned silence from Aerosmith frontman Steven Tyler, pop diva Jennifer Lopez and Idol veteran Randy Jackson. Not a good song choice for a TV show about pop music." Now Jennifer Lopez candidly set Ashley straight. She said, quote, "Here's the thing: The way you sing and the way you act, it's not for American Idol. It is for Broadway. That's where you belong." Period end quote." Next contestant, right? But wait, Ashley wasn't done. Ashley put the brakes in her imminent dismissal with a surprising and original comeback. It was an example of what I tell my clients is something called being verbally viral. That is a pithy positioning line that is brief, forceful, and full of meaning. Now what Ashley did was the equivalent of waving a magic wand to instantly shift the judge's perception of her. Here's what she said. Oh, I can be more pop. I can do it. But, like, I want to be the first showtunes pop star. After giving the judges a micro pause to mentally process that, she delivered a killer close to her verbally viral pitch. I think pop needs to get with Liza Minnelli. This never-before-heard perspective rocked the judges. They laughed and began reappraising Ashley. Jennifer turned to the camera and cued, Oh, I love her! Then Jennifer and Randy both demonstrated that Ashley's line was indeed verbally viral by instantly repeating it while nodding. Pop needs to get with Liza Minnelli. Huh. Pop needs to get with Liza Minnelli. Now while Ashley was literally on her knees and clasping her hands in supplication, you could see the wheels spinning in the judges' heads as they tussled with changing their minds. Then Randy Jackson sighed and gently said, "All right, well... It's a no for today. Now, I think he presumed that he was speaking for the group. Huh? wrong Randy. Before he could send her packing, Jennifer leaned over and hissed into his ear, Give her a golden ticket. Then addressing Ashley, she said, It's a yes for me. Turning back to Randy, she said, I don't care. That left Stephen. He slowly responded, Wow. You know what? It's a yes for me, too. And just like that, Showtune's diva wannabe Ashley Sullivan was off to Hollywood. This reality show showed the reality of a verbal viral line's effectiveness. It didn't matter that Ashley wasn't a fit for Idol. When Jennifer said, I don't care, to Randy, she meant that she didn't care about Ashley's singing. She cared about the power of Ashley's idea. That alone justified Ashley's advancements to Jennifer. Now, Steven Tyler echoed the same justification when he said, wow, you know what? That's code for I was impressed by the concept of what she said more than the edition itself. Pop needs to get with Liza Minnelli. Of course it does. So the question for all of us as speakers is, what in our speech is verbally viral? What line do we say can go verbally viral and can be repeated by others instantly as they tussle in their mind with the bold concept that we just gave them? All right, that's it for VOE for September. Let's keep the conversation going by visiting NSA VOE on Facebook. I'll talk to you again in October.